0: rpn the roddenberry podcast network the trek files season 4 episode 12 First draft teleplay memo october 28 1987.
1: <laughs> Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek.
0: Hey, welcome to another edition of The Trek Files, all you fans, all you Trek historians, you canonistas, I say that lovingly. And of course, our trek spelled with an F. Hey, listen, uh, go to our page on Facebook. The Trek Files, as usual, find this week's document. Uh, We're going to be talking about a classic first season Next Generation episode. Actually, um, some of the commentary in memo form of the reaction to an early draft of 11001001. As a point of (laughs) contention here about the intersection of science and drama and evolving a script and... Best of all, it's great fodder for my guest this week. So take a look at the document. Here's a sample, and then come right back for today's episode. I enjoyed this script a great deal. Other than the obvious similarities to The Big Goodbye, which I hope we can fix, my problems are quite minimal. If the binars are computer-like people living on a computer-driven planet, we need to develop a threat which can only be eliminated by the presence of a giant portable computer— the Binars need a 24th century jumpstart, and the Enterprise is the only battery around. All right, the Binars. Remember the Binars? I used to call them the Borglite. That was a fun episode. Now, obviously, if you read this entire memo from Rick Berman to Gene Roddenberry and his role as uh, not a co-showrunner at this point, as an early-on uh, producer in the mix... He's uh, raising some issues here that I think are interesting, both from where Star Trek eventually evolves to, but um, where, where our computer ease, where our computer literacy was in the '80s, as far as what the popular audience might have thought it would have been, um, as well as just you know getting the hell a script done. And I thought, who better to have me talk about this This is our good friend, uh, Andre Bermanis. Hello. Andre, thanks for coming back. And for everybody, if he needs no introduction, but just in case you do, Andre, of course, came to Star Trek as a fan, but then officially as science advisor on the seventh season of Next Generation, freelance, wrote scripts all through the next few iterations of the show, continued that, but by enterprise, was a co-producer all four years And then has been consulting producer on the Cosmos series, Um, was a developer and co-executive producer on the Mars series, and of course, most recently, has been a co-executive producer over on the Orville and having a lot of fun (laughs) intersecting science and drama. And uh, Or whatever they call the drama on. Or, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of lighthearted drama, yeah. we'll say. Uh, but anyway, thanks for coming back. And I know you mentioned that uh, the Binars, 11001001, say that three times fast, yeah. uh, was one of your favorite episodes. And we found this document. And I think it's a great snapshot in time as well as a a look at how a show evolves. Because for one thing, we're talking about a first draft, and we're not showing the whole first draft, but we're talking about elements in dealing with Klingons, and they're talking about cutting a budget back to not be costly, which we get it. But even what we do know of the episode, this is kind of fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, I remember enjoying this. This is one of the... um One of the few highlights of that first season, which was a somewhat tumultuous start to the (laughs) next generation and subsequent franchise, I think most people would agree. Uh, But very charming episode, a really interesting alien race, an interesting dilemma uh, for the ship and the crew, and I think that the you know the thing that's a little fascinating about this to me, um, you know, it is a bit of a time capsule. The IBM PC, if I recall correctly, was introduced to the public in 1982. Now, there had been... Right. Home things, computer. The home big, computer. Yeah. The first, you know, IBM-styled home computer. Uh, there had been others before it, like right. the Apple II and... But uh, the Tandy's and the... Tandy the, uh, and had a model, and uh, Sinclair, I think, uh, Wang computers. You know, there were, there were a few... Precursors, you know, starting in the late '70s, but those were mostly aimed at hobbyists. The IBM PC was was clearly aimed at 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 small businesses, offices, and even the home market. Uh, There were programs available to do your spreadsheets to edit your writing, like WordPerfect, Lotus123, all of these things that people who are my age or, <laughs> or older will will remember fondly, I'm sure. And it's interesting that only five years after the introduction of the IBM PC, this episode right. aired on uh, the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And words were coming into currency at that time that had not existed uh, in our vocabularies prior to the introduction Of personal computing, Uh, floppy disks, hard drives, monitors, CPUs, uh, mainframes. mainframes. Well, that's been out for a while. Mainframe, yeah, but you know, it was like mainframe, yeah. Mainframe takes on a different meaning in the context of a world that includes personal desktop computers, right? Right. So it's fun to kind of look back at that episode and to look at this memo and see some of uh, some of the concerns that Rick Berman raised about. Uh, the sort of terminology that was being tossed about in the dialogue, and um, and making sure that it was something that people could follow and that it wasn't sort of getting in the way of the character interactions and the plot of the story. Um the binars clearly had their own way of communicating that we didn't understand. Um, we didn't really need to, unless they were speaking directly to us. Um, but of course, the human characters had to kind of have a an idea of what was going on, why the binars had, in effect, hijacked the ship and so on and so forth so this would have been a great i, I would have been interested to be the science consultant on this episode mm-hmm. at that time because i wonder what i would have decided what i would have thought was uh, you know appropriate technobabble for this kind of an episode how i would have phrased it and we still deal with these problems you know even today on the orville um yeah we have computer systems we have you know uh, a computer that basically manages the uh, the quantum drive of the ship. We have navigational computers and so on and so forth. We have not specifically tackled the issue of whether this is a single computer that runs every system on the ship. Clearly, they would have redundancies if it was a single computer or if this is some kind of a distributed system or if it has an entirely different architecture. Uh, we've not had to get into that in dialogue on the show. We've thought about it. I've thought about it. But I'm always very careful to make sure that we're not using terminology that's likely to sound dated in the next few years. We hope that this show has a long life in you know, syndication or whatever it's called these days. Uh, And we don't want to look like, uh, you know, we're, oh, you're stuck in that, you know, early 2010s, you know, kind of way of thinking about computers, especially, you know, today people, quantum computing is all the range. Rage, rather, trying to harness uh, the inherent uh, properties of quantum mechanical systems to do the kinds of calculations that would take traditional digital computers, you know, days, weeks, months, decades even, to perform. And, um, you know, that's, a, that's an emerging technology that yeah. will have its own language and its own way of designing algorithms and so forth. And I've only just really started trying to learn about what all of that means. And so we, we have to be very careful to, you know, to, to not not get caught up in what's happening today in the world of real technology because, you know, we'll end up looking a little dated 5, 10, 20 Well, years it's, it's
0: it, you know, there's so many dynamic tension axes going on with, yeah. all, you know, so many on digital levels. And one of them is staying ahead to not look dated in five years, but mm-hmm. still you've still got to deal with an audience of today. Yeah. But then, hopefully, if you if you think enough of your show that, and, and we see now how media is, things right. are around forever. Yeah, that in five or ten or 15, 20 years, it's it's not laughably. Yes, uh, I mean, like one of the we talk about, you know, in the mid sixties, the decision to not call those sidearms and weapons lasers, but to call them phasers, right. and now that's a golden. Term that was, yes. you know, but at the same time, every time I hear the original series and Spock of all people, Spock talks about memory banks. Yes. And memory banks. Yeah. yeah. That's such a 60s, you know, we, we right. buffer and, and yeah. memory, just memory whatever now, yeah. and all the little, even. You know the kids that are growing up with computers in the womb, much right. less in the yeah, cradle. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a dated reference, and yeah. so it's yeah, it is a, is a, so Rick's concerns here. And again, Rick is not the co showrunner here yet. He's mm-hmm. just one of the guys in the pool. Right. Uh, Bob Justman and everyone else are. He's CC, Maury Hurley, and Bob Lou and yeah, also at right. the bottom. And his concerns, uh, you're mentioning the PC timeline. So the the, the Apple Macintosh and the Mac yeah, Plus have just, just, yeah. just been out. I mean, right. I bought my first Mac Plus about six months after this memo's dated. So right. we're all just getting there. But the, the big concept of the story here that the Binar's – don't have enough memory. As Rick mm-hmm. says, though, yeah. at the same time, makes the good old you know Star Trek analogy there, yeah. the trope of, um, it's just like us kickstarting
1: starting their... Uh, you know, we're going we're <laughs> to jump-start the binars. Well, that's uh, the thing. You know, you, you've got to make sure that whatever you say, however you portray these technologies, the audience has to be able to understand it at some level. It has to be relatable. Um, you, you want the characters to sound smart, to sound like they know what they're talking about, you don't want to go over the heads of the audience or at least, you know, your assumptions about the level of education of the audience and so forth. And, sure, in the far future, uh, we'll have very different kinds of computers. We probably won't even call them computers. We'll call them something else. But, you know, if you let yourself get into those levels of, extra- uh, of abstraction and extrapolation, um, you're going you're gonna to create a show that... It's just not watchable. People aren't going to get it. They're not going to understand. And, and you know, when you think about it, you know, Gene was very much about believability, mm-hmm. the willing suspension of disbelief. For the hour that you're sitting in front of your television watching this show that we've created for you, we want you to believe that you're on a starship, having an adventure hundreds of years in the future, thousands of light years away in space. Just for that one hour, we want you to believe <laughs> that. And we're going to do everything that we can to, to make that as believable for you as possible, right? But ultimately, Star Trek was not about the far future. Right. It was about the present. It was about today. It was about the issues that we're facing in today's world. When you look at the original series, what were the issues that Gene was taking on week after week mm-hmm. in those episodes? War, racism, uh, religion, reproductive rights, you know. Other topics that were right. kind of taboo on TV, but that he could get away with addressing uh, in a "quote unquote" science fictional television show that's all oh, it's about the future and far off in space. Right. That's not really our world. So well, well, it's somewhere between safe and we can sneak it by the censors yeah, of the time. Yeah, exactly. And even though ev
0: even though we're not in nearly as self censored an environment and a culture as, as our mass Correct. media was, and we've yeah. got a thousand channels, not three. Yeah. yeah. Right, which helps. Yeah. Um, if we're not so much trying to disguise the message or yes. the metaphor right at least disguise it maybe for the own for the if, not disguising it for a censor disguising it for our own self-censoring yes. and finding another approach right. into our cognition of what is going on and get, you know having a third way to approach people instead of maybe the script that they're on the black it makes the story wives.
1: more powerful you know we right. could all write lectures you know we can all write a lecture about why racism is bad but to dramatize that in a story where it's not obvious to you why these people have this racial animus. And then they say, well, you know, are you blind? What, uh, I'm white on the right side. He's black on the right side. <laughs> and then you realize, well, how freaking absurd is that? You <laughs> yeah. know? It makes for a much more powerful story. So that's the kind of thing that I think a show like Star Trek, science fiction generally, works best when it finds a metaphor that confounds your expectation about where the story is going and really shines a new and and unforgiving light on something like racism, war, um, you know, quest- questions of gender rights. Um, and, th- and those are the kinds of stories that stay with people.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, illuminating that or as a platform for that, sometimes it was on the nose, say, with the original series with Ultimate Computer. Sure. Oh, a computer is going to replace your job, right? right? Which is still very... Very Automation and robotics is very prescient today. That was a little bit on the nose. Really, jump-starting. Change is so imperceptible sometimes until we have an actual revolution. We don't think about the effect that the digital world, computers, automation, social networks, the fact that the most valuable commodity in the world might not be oil, it might be data, and that's what's driving things now. Those imperceptible changes that when you set a show 200 years, 300 years in the future – and you're trying, even with the limitations of your awareness now, as a as a producer, as a TV person now, or nice. as an audience member, right? You're, you're you're trying to think, oh, here's a slap in the face about how much things have changed. Mm-hmm. And so they're grappling with those issues here. And and yes, it's I mean to me, I'm reading what Rick's talking here about. Oh, oh, you writer types knowing what a mainframe is. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> this is yep. the same show that in four or five years is going to be teching the tech. Right. Right? Yep. And and I th- with and Michael Pillar, the techno babble term, yep. you know, they weren't even there yet. Yeah. And Rick's on one hand, sounding the alarm about that, but he's also embracing a lot of the technical and and, and seeing them as valuable dramatic pieces.
1: Like yeah. With well, the as, as we've discussed before, it, it, it can be a fine line, you know. You have to have you, know, you you've got characters on these shows. Every you know, every incarnation of Star Trek has had a character who's a scientist, who's an engineer, who's a communications officer, a medical officer, et cetera, et cetera. You're not gonna believe those characters are real unless they speak in a certain technical language mm-hmm. when they're dealing with a, a problem within their area of expertise. You know? And I I just thought about, you know, when I'm when I was working on, on Star Trek and and teching the tech, I would um, none did often, it better, Andre. Thank you. So none please. did it better. Uh, none did it longer. Um, <laughs> yes. but I uh, you know and I would to tell about yeah, it. <laughs> I would always think to myself, you know, if I were walking down the hallway at some in some building at JPL and I heard a couple of engineers talking about a problem with a system on a Mars Rover or the deep mm-hmm. space antenna, you know, or this, that, or the other. Um, I might not understand a hundred percent of what they're talking about, depending on, you know, my level of technical expertise versus mm-hmm. what they're, you know, the problem that they're trying to solve. But I would be able to tell, even in an area where I knew very little, That those guys know what they're talking about. So I tried to make sure that when we had those kinds of yeah those (laughs) kinds of technical exchanges, when Chief O'Brien is talking to Geordi about the warp drive or whatever it was, that those guys know what they're talking about. I may not know exactly the relationship Mm -hmm. between the dilithium crystals and the warp plasma and the warp coils and the this that and the other, but you got to know. You got to believe you got to write it in such a way that the audience says, oh yeah, those guys know what they're talking about. And then the fans who really like to dig deep, uh, they'll understand that, oh, that's right, you know, they set that up way mm-hmm. back in the original mm-hmm. series, that this is how that component works, or that's what they do, you know. <laughs> uh, same thing with stuff from the real world, you know, you try to make sure that you know the doctors. You know, my got a lot of doctors in my family. My uncle's a surgeon. My grandmother was a pediatrician. My sister-in-law's a doctor. My youngest brother's a veterinarian. So I had a lot of people I could call on for um, you know stuff mm-hmm. with um, you know with uh, Doctor Crusher or with the Doctor on Voyager or Doctor Bashir. And when they were talking about anything related to anatomy and physiology with a particular kind of wound or this, that, or the other. Um, yeah, I, I, I use the correct medical dialogue and again, we didn't have to get into great detail, but if you have one doctor talking to another doctor, it's a different kind of conversation than when you're going to your doctor and saying, Hey, I've got this problem with my elbow. What do you think it is? You right. know what I mean?
0: Well, and it's just in the, in the 18 year span of modern of, of excuse me, I can't say modern Trek anymore yeah. of, of the Berman era here yeah. that we have go, we go from Rick expressing caution. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, He's not cautioning against the open mouth kiss, like yes, a yeah. censor in the original series. Yeah, right. He's cautioning about overloading the poor audience with computerese. But at the same time, we're worried about selling this idea of what the, the binars need in memory. Yeah. Basically, space. Yes. And then within how many years are we up to on DS9 where the whole plot of Our Man Bashir is tech gone wrong, but it's tech gone wrong with The reason because we needed more buffer for a hollow, yes, for a hollow, for, to, sure. to, to keep people alive. Yeah. And we use the holodeck as a life saving yeah, tool. Yeah. And it comes out as the wacky adventures, yeah. you know, of our Man Bashir. Right. But it's very much based on a pro not breakdown, but a problem and a solution. And this is the unintended consequence. And it all, Happens, you know, but the, the 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 ability to think the audience is going to accept and know what's
1: going on there. Well, and they were becoming more sophisticated as time went on too. Exactly, as, as PCs
0: only only what four, five, six, seven, eight, eight years yeah, later here. Yeah.
1: yeah, and now you know, I mean, computers, um, you know, iPads and uh, you know tablets. Smartphones—they permeate our culture. So we we have a much more sophisticated audience in that regard today than we had back in the '80s. And so you got to try to keep up with that, and ideally, stay just a little bit ahead of it, so you don't end up looking dated in a few years.
0: That's part of the reason why people feel so. People been talking about the pace of change Mm
1: -hmm.
0: for centuries, (laughs) but it really is getting faster and faster and faster. And that's one thing that you know, science fiction, Star Trek, can do is maybe. Hold our hand a little. Yeah. And try to deal with that. Future shock, as
1: Alvin Talfler Thank you. It. Yes, yeah. good
0: old future shock. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling, before I completely <laughs> submit to a case of future shock here, that uh, take a breath and assimilate what we've been talking about here. Andre, it's been great to have you in and, and hold our hand while we talk about some of these. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> the Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash Files. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcasts.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me. At LarryNemichek.com. Trek well, everybody.